So jobs take the best hours of the best years of people's lives. But what if people didn't have to do this work? For many people, this is the appeal of a base income. The promise of being able to spend your life the way that you want to spend it. Unfortunately, it's not a promise that a basic income alone can deliver on universally. Because while some people might be free to pursue their interests outside of work, others would have to continue working in order to keep society functioning. That is the founder of Basic Income Australia, Josh McGee, speaking on the opening day of the 2022 Basic Income Earth Network Congress in Brisbane. I'm Robert McLean, your host of Climate Conversations. Welcome. It's so great to have you on board. Climate Conversations is put together here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. It's worth mentioning that I'm not actually in Shepparton at the moment, I'm in Queensland on the Sunshine Coast and yesterday, and yesterday was the 26th of September, I was at the Congress courtesy of the organisers. They allowed me a media pass. And so I'm sitting at a desk at the moment in my daughter's house on the Sunshine Coast putting together this podcast. And I recorded Josh. As he said, he's the founder of the basic in- the Melbourne-based Basic Income Australia organisation, a small group that is doing what it can to promote the idea of the basic income. The UBI is closely related to finding some sort of way to navigate through climate change. Let's have a listen now to what Josh had to say at the Basic Income Earth Network Congress in Brisbane. Thank you, Josh. Hello, everybody. Uh, So I am Josh McGee. Uh, For people who don't know, I founded Basic Income Australia, which is the most active grassroots uh, group in Australia. Uh, I'm a bit nervous. I don't like giving presentations, so I'm going to stick to the script and jump straight into it. So jobs take the best hours of the best years of people's lives. But what if people didn't have to do this work? For many people, this is the appeal of a basic income. The promise of being able to spend your life the way that you want to spend it. Unfortunately, it's not a promise that a basic income alone can deliver on universally. Because while some people might be free to pursue their interests outside of work, others would have to continue working in order to keep society functioning. The simple fact is that as long as essential industries like waste management, food production and water treatment require hands on deck, somebody has to do that work. Of course, as basic income increases their negotiating power, the workers in these industries may have improved working conditions and higher pay, but there will always be a percentage of workers required, which creates a key challenge in convincing people that a basic income is a good idea. What would happen if everybody stopped working? As activists engaged in the basic income discussion, you probably want to cite the trials that have been done which suggests this isn't a likely scenario. But given the small scale and limited scope of the trials to date, I have a lot of empathy for the people who don't want to risk their livelihood on something that's not completely predictable. And for those people who aren't convinced by the existing data, there's nothing you could tell them that would change their minds, which creates an upper ceiling to the support for a basic income. But what if everybody could stop working and society could continue functioning? A lot of decisions are made based on the assumption that this isn't possible, but I think it is. What I propose is a policy that would work in perfect tandem with a basic income, and one that I think we should advocate for alongside it. A national automation authority. This would be a government agency with an explicit objective to automate people's jobs. Now, of course, automating everybody out of work would be an impossible task. Many jobs are designed to meet people's desires, and in theory, there is no limit to people's desires. But people's needs are finite. And this is why I think the national automation authority should focus on the jobs that are necessary to the functioning of society. Then let's say there was a mass exodus from jobs. 
It might be sad to no longer have yoga instructors, baristas and elective surgeons, but they would pale in comparison to not having food, water and electricity. While the line does blur between necessary and unnecessary, COVID lockdowns have done a great favour in helping to clarify where those boundaries lie. Now I want to be clear what I mean when I talk about automation, because you might be imagining a Terminator robot building a house. The definition that's most useful for me is something that's able to act without human intervention. Like when you sign up to a website and it sends you that email to validate your account, nobody was sitting there manually sending the email. It was automated. So sure, I'm happy for the robot building the house to be classified as automation, but so would a nicely designed user interface if it meant people were able to find the information they were looking for intuitively without having to ask for help. If I were to take this thought to its extreme, you could even classify books as a form of automation. Rather than the author having to say what they want to say again and again, the book can allow them to communicate at scale. It's also useful to think about automation as a process that can and often should be incremental. As an example, a professional chef performs tasks that are so diverse, it would be an overwhelming challenge to think about automating them all at once. But an incremental approach would break down the tasks of a chef and develop a dicing solution, a frying solution, a stirring solution, and so on. Each incremental step would lessen the workload on the chef further and further until they're useful to have around but are no longer needed. This context of an industrial kitchen also highlights another important factor to consider, which is that it's often easier to modify an environment to make it more suitable for machinery than it is to design a machine that, can, that integrates into environments designed for humans. Modern kitchens are designed to be used with dexterous hands at waist height, and while some companies do attempt to build robots for this kind of environment, they're typically found lacking but they because they're not the conditions that machines are optimized for. Barcodes and QR codes are great examples of how an environment can be created to be more suitable for machines. For most people, a label is easy enough to interpret, and a lot of effort could be put into some kind of machine learning model that can predict and classify a label as well as we can, but a high contrast black and white pattern is a more machine-friendly solution, even if it is unreadable to most humans. The principle of designing an environment to better suit automation is also shown in the construction of train tracks and roads. Rather than developing some kind of robotic horse that can handle all terrains, we've created an environment that is more suitable to the simple mechanical motion of wheels. And it's easy to become numb to the complicated systems of car manufacturing, road laws, driver licensing, traffic light systems, and so on, that have been developed in order to automate the job that horses used to hold. This wasn't a small feat. We've seen similar investments in national plumbing networks, electricity grids, and telecommunications grids. These large-scale investments demonstrate that we're capable of structural environmental change. We've done it before, and with motivation, we can do it again. Now, if we're talking about the automation of necessary and life-critical functions, these would be disastrous to have fail, so it's important to talk briefly about fail-safe strategies. Redundancy is typically implemented in existing critical systems, and it allows for segments of the system to fail without the overall functionality from failing. For example, a plane might have two engines, but only one might be needed in order for the plane to operate. Of course, ideally, no individual segment should fail, and a safety factor can be used to design more robust systems. For example, an elevator might be designed with an expected maximum capacity of 1,000 kilograms, but the materials and mechanisms might be then designed to handle several times that, say 10,000 kilograms. Now, I've talked broadly about automation principles, but what might a national automation authority practically look like? There are many existing agencies and departments that provide an example of a path forward, but personally, I think the Department of Defense is the most relevant one to imitate. This is partially due to the way that it's able to coordinate internal and external contractors to achieve many projects simultaneously, but more importantly, 
its sense of scale and priority, is used to soak up a significant portion of Australian engineering talent. And far too often, war is justified by the technological innovation it results in, and I'd like to see that same level of scale and priority put towards meeting people's needs in a war against poverty and mandatory labour. Generally, I envision the department working in three phases. The first would be the, to define the areas of greatest potential impact. That means identifying jobs that are both common and necessary and then prioritising them based on how common and necessary they are. It should also consider how easily automated these tasks are. Jobs that require human interaction like caring work and therapy should be lower on the list than jobs in which workers are already treated like machines. Step two would be to develop an automation roadmap for the defined task. And then step three would be to implement that roadmap. So let's consider a case study. Let's say that during the first phase, the job identified was sorting recycling. Currently, this is partially done auton autonomously, using weight and magnets to filter heavier and more ferrous materials. But then lightweight, non-ferrous materials are then sorted by hand. Now, there is a robot capable of this lightweight sorting, which you can see on the right. And it's not currently implemented in Australia because human workers are cheaper. During the second phase, research would be done into whether or not the solution should be developed in-house, contracted out, or purchased from an existing pool. And then finally, to roll this out, it might look like open sourcing the system details into the public domain and providing ongoing support to organizations that want to implement it for themselves. This would level the playing field, empowering smaller organizations to take advantage of technologies that are currently only accessible to large companies. This recycling case study is, of course, hypothetical. It would be impossible for me as a lone individual to develop a solution at this scale by myself, but this is why having a larger, more resourced body focused on this is so important. The next question you might ask is that if this is possible, why hasn't it been done already? The answer is simple. It's just not the priority. Many political decisions are currently made with the explicit objective to create jobs because those are the logical political priorities in a world in which jobs are the foundations to create a stable life. But this is where the integration with the basic income comes in, because these two proposals solve the political weaknesses of one another. A national automation authority is a wildly unappealing proposal in a world without a strong social safety net, and when work is the defining feature of people's lives. And a basic income doesn't seem like an appealing uh, proposal to people who are concerned about the prospect of an unstable economy in a world with a less central focus on jobs. Often a basic income is proposed in fear of automation, but let's take this idea and flip it so that a basic income can be the first step towards embracing automation. Rather than continuing to develop these systems repeatedly at small scales and for private interests, we can take a more deliberate approach to develop them for the public good. As an engineer, this proposal doesn't come from a naive idea that this new world can exist tomorrow, but rather an acknowledgement that this will take time and energy, and that it's a goal worth prioritizing and taking steps towards. For the sake of creating a society that can more securely meet people's needs, so everyone can spend their lives doing what they want to do, not what they have to do to survive. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. That was thoughtful stuff. That wraps up this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. And until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your friends.